and welcome to the Trap Little Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Runcy. Our guest today is Jesse Kirschbaum. Some of you might know him as Jesse K. Others of you might know him as Uncle Jesse on Twitter. He is the CEO of New Agency. Jesse, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Dan. It's an honor and a pleasure. I'm a big fan of yours and your work. So it's good to be able to connect. Thanks, man. Likewise. I think it would be great for people to hear a little bit of background on New Agency, because you started this around 12 years ago, but it's definitely shifted since then. You started as a talent agency, but now things have moved more into the brand and marketing side of things. So take us back. Tell us about the journey and how you got to where things are today. At the very beginning of my career, a family friend advised me that being an agent was the best way to gain experience and learn multiple facets of the business. It's a fast-paced game, and it taught me how to eat what you kill. As business owners and entrepreneurs by nature, I was able to earn instant revenue without raising upfront capital. And that's what being a talent agent was all about. You get to meet all these different people in the live side of the ecosystem and discover how to build and break artists by touching their fans. So I was 22 and I was at a boutique agency and I signed clips. And about five years later, I started a new agency and was able to shift with the clips over the years and stay very close with them. And one of the main reasons I was able to find a lot of these artists was because not only did we see talent in them very early on and bring value immediately, but we were able to focus on areas that the major agencies weren't, which was at the time the college market and the tech sector. So we were finding our talent in the college market and touring those artists in the college market too. So besides Clips, really early on, I signed Mims, Wale, who I found on MySpace, and then he introduced me to Jake Cole, Mike Posner, we founded Duke, and then he introduced me to Big Sean, and over the years, as a talent agent, was the first agent of representation for Logic, and Action Bronson, and White Panda, which then became Griffin. 2AM Club, which then spawned out Mark Bassey and many others. So in many ways, we were like the tech whispers for these artists and the companies that we took interest in and we were passionate about, we were able to build relationships with. So we were doing early marketing for Spotify while we were the agent for all of these artists. Even though representing artists was a 24-7 job with no days off, we started to realize that there was bigger opportunities. We just started to broker so many college deals that it started to get a little exhausting. And so I could hear for the long run that there was a bigger opportunity beyond just the grind of representing an artist. And so we rebranded the agency to this new wave kind of culture marketing agency. And we were able to bring in friends at Red Antler to orchestrate the rebrand and help us envision the next chapter. And because of our experience and our workload, we were really nimble and able to handle all the volume. So it was an easy pivot from doing 400 shows a month as a talent agency to working with brands. 
And really on the business side, we just saw that the industry was shifting. We could see that streaming was starting to take off. Spotify, again, was somebody early. We were building with all these tech companies. And we could see that music was reinventing itself as an industry. And being this kind of new wave culture marketing firm gave us a much bigger runway to really stand in front of our work versus just working with artists and representing artists. So we just saw a much bigger ceiling. And in about 2014, we shifted the business model and haven't looked back. Yeah, hearing those names, Clips, Mike Posner, Wale, it brings me back to the blog era. And there was just so much white space because I don't think the standard industry knew how best to support and how best to connect with those types of artists. So you finding that opportunity made a ton of sense. But I think as we look back, like that era itself was fairly short-lived. I feel like there's like a certain type of hip hop consumer you can talk to that's like, oh yeah, remember that era when these artists are breaking out? But now that hip hop has become more mainstream than it has been in the past, and we're starting to see artists that aren't just the superstars being able to leverage their likeness and either connect with brands or brands try to connect with them, vice versa. That transition makes a lot of sense. And as you said, I'm sure it's much more scalable than the model you had before. Yeah, I feel like the brand space is kind of like the new blog space. In the beginning, a lot of these artists needed those blog cross-signs, and that's how they got hot and relevant, was the platforms and the blogs propping them up. And now a lot of artists are getting that extra marketing from these brands and these brand activations and campaigns. So the joke is, at least on my end, is that brand space has become the new blog space when it comes to breaking artists. And it really made a lot of sense as we saw that that was happening to shift our focus for the company. And as you look at this space and knowing that these phases don't necessarily last forever, do you feel like you have in the back of your mind, okay, what's next? What does the next wave look like? What should we be preparing for? Yeah, I definitely think that there's just still early innings when it comes to the brand space. I feel like there's a big opportunity in trying to figure out how to take some of this money from the sports world and bring it into music because we know music is so much more relevant than sports in a lot of different ways. But yet there's 60 billion spent a year from brand dollars in sports. And there's only 1.5 when it comes to music. So there's a lot more room for the music and brand space to grow. I just feel like it's about education at this point and helping a lot of these startup brands, these D2C brands, these emerging brands, figure out why and how they need to play in music too. So that's a trend that I'm super focused on, although there's more stuff coming. That's interesting to hear because I think about a lot of the rising direct-to-consumer brands, not necessarily the unicorns, but the ones that are on the come up. And I feel that several of them may leverage artists as influencers if they're trying to do an initial campaign. I'm thinking back to away, for example, I'd reached out to a bunch of influencers and I know influencers aren't artists, but just how they've thought about the strategy. But I don't see much more beyond that, but I'm sure you're thinking that there's a lot more because there's all this space between what you may see like with Drake and a Toronto Raptors or what they're doing versus what a direct-to-consumer brand could accomplish, even in the early stages. Absolutely. 
And I feel like it's bigger than just influencers. Influencers to me and that whole influencer economy feels like it's wavering a little bit. It just feels like it's pay for play and it's a little overexposed and the authenticity of a lot of it goes away. Whereas musicians are creators. I don't look at them as necessarily just influencers. I look at them as artists that are making content and making art and connecting with them and their journey and supporting them and vice versa is way more meaningful than like a kid with cute eyebrows that is on fleek that's able to galvanize a quick hit in terms of impressions. So I look at musicians and artists as way more meaningful than the traditional influencer model and need to be approached in that lens. And it's interesting when you talk about Drake and the Raptors, I mean, Drake by himself on tour with just a microphone, essentially could sell out basketball arenas all over the world. I mean, his tour with the Migos grossed 79 million and sold 68,000 tickets over 43 dates. That's more than many of the NBA teams, but yet the brand money that's in the NBA versus music or even Drake versus these teams is just not even comparable. It's interesting because I know that Instagram followers aren't necessarily a clear benchmark of success or a clear benchmark of popularity. I forget who has more, but if I had to compare who has more followers, Drake or LeBron, I would assume it's pretty close. And I would think that people would be trying to reach out to them from an equivalent perspective in that type of way. But I still think that even to this stage that LeBron James gets many more hits. And I don't know what your take on this is. My initial take was that, okay, if you're banking on LeBron James, not only do you have his likeness, but you know that come April, May, and June, he is going to be on primetime television and tens of millions of people are going to be watching each night of the finals. Do people look at that and say, okay, well, where's the equivalent to Drake? Like when does Drake get the equivalent exposure? And I don't necessarily look at it that way. I understand that Drake has opportunities that LeBron doesn't, but I wonder if that's part of the imbalance or if that's part of the reason why there's such a big difference. I mean, Drake's music moves way more frictionlessly than LeBron does. You can hear Drake, how many spins, I'd have to try to do some research on that, but how many streams he had and how many listens he's had and how his music is on the radio and cars on television. There's no question that Drake is reaching a larger audience in terms of his craft than LeBron is in terms of what brand is bigger. It's just really about what the brand in particular or whoever's connecting with these two, what their audience wants and how to build a more meaningful relationship with that fan base. You don't see Drake in business with many brands. You do LeBron, or at least some choice ones. So I think both of them are very authentic, great partners for brands. But it's just about if Drake was doing a brand partnership, I don't feel like it's as obvious or it's as done. So I think fans are going to pay very big attention. That makes sense. Because the things that stick out, I think about the Sprite commercials, and I feel like he had a lot more of those back in the day than he even has now. I know that he had EP'd, I think it was LeBron's documentary as well, more than a game that was more than 10 years ago at this point. But yeah, there are a few examples like that. But I'd be interested so to hear... when he does something, 
it really connects. It does, especially at that level. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't become the artist of the decade by mistake. And as I tell many people, we've seen people have runs, like obviously Jay-Z has been a household name for decades, but the year-by-year consistency that Drake has had and even if the people don't think that his album's a classic or whatever, the fact that there is a hit and he stays in the consciousness as he has for 11 years now, that's rare. And I don't know if we'll see that again. And I think that should be the first thing that people think about when they think about the opportunity of someone like that, but also other artists as well. I agree. I think he's a great vehicle for the right brand partnerships like LeBron is. And I feel like his reach is definitely comparable. But I think we're seeing a lot more brand deals for LeBron than we are for Drake. Because the logic is that he's going to be on television. and It's just easier to wrap your head around. And there's a league that supports it. Yeah. So tell me a bit about some of the major brand deals that you've worked on with New Agency. Look, we're always doing different things. As a music agency and kind of a culture marketing agency, there's a lot of different facets of what that looks like. Pretty much everything we do touch music and marketing. But I can tell you about some of the kind of recent ones. I can tell you about some of the bigger ones we had. Why don't I start with just right when we rebranded the agency, Sour Patch Kids came knocking on a really good time. And so... I was known already at the time as someone that could make crazy ideas come to life in the artist and brand space. And I got a call from a representative at Mondelez, Bon and Bao. He's like one of the most respected marketers in the brand world. And Bon and I had worked together for a long time when he was at Pepsi before Mondelez. And by coincidence, he was on a flight with an artist that knew represented. And the two of them like scribbled on napkins a plan for Sour Patch Kids to impact the music business. We brought a team together to make this idea come to life and to execute it. And we started by taking over a brownstone in Brooklyn, where emerging artists would spend the night on the road. And we really isolated this kind of pain point for artists, where artists that are touring needed a place to stay. And staying people's couches and in different hotels was just really uninspiring. So the concept was really like, let's support emerging artists in helping them ignite kind of this huge content generator for Sour Patch Kids. So we embedded Sour Patch Kids into the lifestyle while these artists would stay at these houses, or at least the first one in Brooklyn. And it took a lot of work getting the program off the ground and earning the industry's trust with the candy brand. But it didn't get more intimate than housing. And over four years, we had over 300 artists stay and become one of the most buzzed about programs in the industry. Not only did Sour Patch Kids earn hundreds of millions of impressions off the program, it also became the number one selling candy and uh, people's champ with artists and fans. And the program just became this staple as one of the most innovative music campaigns, especially for emerging artists and working with a brand. And I feel like there's another big opportunity for emerging artists to connect with the right brands with a program similar to that. That's awesome to hear. I think a bunch of people would be interested to hear 
how Sour Patch Kids can then connect with artists in that way. Because I think a lot of people that own brands may often think, okay, well, how can I get my brand to seem relatable if off the bat, the first thing you may think about isn't that, oh yeah, Sour Patch Kids, they would be perfect for a brand activation with a hip hop artist or with a major pop artist. How did you make that connection and what was your process with that? It was really about the Sour Patch Kids ethos at the time. They saw themselves as the emerging candy brand on the aisle. It was very different than where they sit now after five or six years from this program. At the time, there was Skittles, there was Starburst, there was all these gummy candies, and they were like the new kid on the block started in the 80s. So they wanted to be with kind of a cool audience, and they realized that music was a great way to do that. And supporting emerging artists, their fan bases were rabid. So we basically were able to design the program in a way that would kind of have a new wave spin on influencers, or at least on like the traditional influencer marketing where we were getting these posts, but it was mutually beneficial. It was supporting the artists. It was helping the brand really get onto these artists' platforms by supporting them. If it was a music studio in the house and the artists were making music and it was just well tastefully designed and supported by Sour Patch Kids, or if it was simple things that we could figure out that would support an artist that was touring. If it was laundry, if it was dinner or bringing in a chef to cook for them, just allowing the artists all to be in one house. And so the process was figuring out all these pain points and then building it as it went with the artists and continuing to grow. And Sour Patch Kid needed a little bit of a long-term strategy on this because over time they became the number one selling candy in the categories, but it was over three years and hundreds of artists and all of these impressions and all of these different content pieces created that they really were able to impact. And obviously they did a couple other smart moves as well beyond just this music initiative, but it became a staple for Sour Patch Kids to be looked at as cool when they were on all of these really cool artist channels being kind of co-promoted in a fresh way. That's awesome. In terms of timing, just to clarify, most of this happened before social media truly took off with Twitter and Instagram and the way brands are using that today, right? It was happening. Okay. Right? Instagram was happening and Twitter was happening. So absolutely, they were on the rise and they were platforms that were getting bigger, but influencer marketing wasn't as kind of overexposed at the time. It was earlier than what the traditional influencer marketing now looks like. Right. So now we're in this phase where every brand is trying to sound hip and is trying to dunk on each other on Twitter or say something interesting. How has the evolution of that changed how you would go about this type of partnership or this type of activation? And what are some examples, if you have any, that you could share? Yeah, I feel like it's more about lifestyle. And at this point, you see it even with like another one of the partnerships we put together last year was with Bel Air and Sovereign Brands and Ray Schrimmer. Bel Air has had a lot of success with Rick Ross, obviously, and DJ Khaled. 
I was quietly becoming the third largest champagne brand in America behind Moet and Vogue. And this was maybe two years ago. Obviously, Ace of Spades is also in that running. But Bel Air was looking to find something that was going to keep them young and keep them premium, but keep them attainable. And so they really understood that marketing with hip hop, especially in the kind of lifestyle and content space requires you to create way more content, way more than just like a simple post. So I feel like with Ray Schwimmer and Bel Air, we were able to find the right act for them. And they were able to just basically support Slim Jimmy and Sway all year long and just kind of roll with them from everything from their birthday parties to their Swaycations and really just be fully immersed in the lifestyle. And I feel like that was a way that without a house, a brand was able to really build a long-term partnership with an artist throughout the year and just be everywhere with that artist as a lifestyle accessory. No, that makes sense. Do you see any examples of brands that are trying to build out the lifestyle, trying to up their own content game, but you could tell that they're trying to do it, but they're just not doing the best job? I feel like I see this all the time on social media, but I'm sure that that must be an even bigger frustration for you because you're in this space. Yeah, I mean, I think when you're slapping a logo on an artist or if you're not it feels really interchangeable or pay for play or like a one-off one and done type thing it just kind of goes quick and disappears and so you don't feel any real traction beyond just the press hit or that initial post what i really liked about what the sour patch kids program was and similar to what like the ray and bel-air deal is that it's a consistency of flow versus just post something and keep it moving. So I don't think that works as effectively. I think you need to be able to have more of a story and look at it more as a partnership that matters. Right. No, the story piece I think is key. And it makes me think a lot about some of the stuff I've written, many of the things that you've covered as well in your own interviews I've seen where you've been talking to people. I think the consistency is truer. And I think people really do buy into that authenticity more than they have before. I'm interested to hear about some of the brands that you've connected with that are probably less of a stretch, but they still need, I'm sure, a good amount of work. I know you've worked with Tidal and you've done work with Elliot Wilson's Crown series. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Crown started with Elliot and I we were, you know, knew each other a little bit, but I was in Martha's Vineyard producing a festival or helping launch a festival with Neon Gold. And Elliot was out there and he was with his wife. And I ran into them in a diner and started chatting with them. He followed up with trying to figure out ways to work together. And we landed on this idea that we were going to do a interview with Kendrick Lamar at South by and Elliot is just this credible journalist that has been around, understands really the ins and outs of what traditional journalism is, but he was reinventing himself at the time with rap radar. And he was kind of becoming this digital facing 
kind of new wave journalist, essentially. And so after the interview we did with Kendrick, it went really well. We started to figure out we could do this more. And so we launched the brand together in New York with Tyler, the creator. We were able to get Mountain Dew to come in and sponsor it. And so we shot it and we could barely get a venue at the time because it was so obscure to see live interviews. This was really before the live podcast revolution. And so we became this like late night. It was culty, like 3 a.m. We started at midnight. We did our first crown. And that was about five years ago with Tyler. And it just was so well received. And so we started to get calls from other artists to do this. And we have now done about 40 of them. And the artists really love it. It's become like a staple in their release plans or talking to them when they're, they're kind of hot and relevant. And Elliot is amazing. He goes to college on these artists and really learns the ins and outs. And also he's got a lot of context. He knows them so well. And it's become this kind of long form interview therapy on stage opportunity for an artist to really tell their story similar to like inside the actor's studio, but with like a new school twist. You see artists, you know, they'll do Jimmy Fallon, they'll three minutes or they'll do like the press run. But this is kind of an opportunity to be in front of your trusted fans in a live experience where the content reaches millions of people after. And Tidal has been a great partner. You know, they've got their focuses and Elliot's obviously the chief content officer over there. And so they saw it and believed in it and have been supporting it for the past year or so. So it's a platform that we really enjoy doing with Tidal. And I just am a big fan of Tidal's. I feel like they're very necessary in this kind of streaming wars environment to have an artist at the table with Apple and, you know, Daniel Ek and Spotify. I think having an artist centric platform is really important. And I've seen the kind of steps and moves they've made and clearly they're looking out for the artists and have an artist sensibility. And I can respect that tremendously. They really know how to get behind something. So it, they've been a great partner and crown as a standalone continues to evolve. We're really excited for where things are going. I think this might be the first hip hop deal that went down at Martha's Vineyard. You'd be surprised. Really? Um, definitely. Martha's Vineyard is an amazing place. It's so eclectic and chill. It's not traditional, pretentious. Like it's not uppity. It's just, it's my favorite place in the world. You really share that like love for it. It's easy once you get there and you, and you feel it, it's just a wonderful place to relax. And I don't relax extremely well. So while I'm relaxing, I definitely am always trying to think about business as well. And, and it's a great time to, to have a free flowing conversation. And that's basically where things spawned. Yeah, it is a beautiful spot. I'm originally from Connecticut, from Hartford. And I've been there once, been to Block Island, been to the Cape, been to a few of the other spots around there. But no, I do think that as I'm like bringing myself back to it, I'm like, no, it is a great spot for stuff like that. You, yeah. And free flowing conversation is just such a great, you never know what's going to happen when you get people together and you're kind of in a relaxed space and you're not on the clock and 
that's where real relationships can be forged. Yeah. You hinted at the evolution of artists talking and live podcasting and being able to listen to what artists have to say. I do think that that is a way that Crown and to a broader extent Rap Radar has been able to ride as well, which has been interesting. I feel like the hip hop that so many of us grew up with, when we heard from someone, it was when they stopped by Hot 97 for a few minutes to do the album for their promo, or they did a radio drop, or they would have went on one of the countdown shows on BET or MTV, something like that. The sit down interview, I just want to hear what this person says that they're not rapping. That's evolved considerably with media overall, but I do think it's made a tremendous impact on hip hop, the growth of the breakfast club, the growth of a lot of these platforms. And I think that has also been able to both influence the trajectory that something like crown has had because artists clearly want to see it. And now that there's a market for it, I don't see that slowing down anytime soon. They're so creative. They're so knowledgeable. If you want to know what's hot and relevant, ask a hot artist. They're so plugged in to the creative process. There's so much to their story. Crown is really focused on the biggest artists in the world. Our last one was with Will Smith and Martin Lawrence, our first foray into movies. Other verticals could be spawning from that. But with Rap Radar, one of these artists and executives that Elliot's speaking with, there's so many valuable takeaways from their story. There's so much to learn from artists. I mean, that's kind of the impetus of the whole business that we've got at new is that artists are your creative Sherpas to culture and being able to listen to artists and harness their creativity in a way that benefits not only them, but your brand is so powerful. I love it. I love being able to talk to artists And that's one of the real perks of working in the music business is being able to be touched by all that creativity and harness it in a creative marketing way. But yeah, I mean, their stories are fascinating. I think that what Elliot's doing now and how he's reinvented himself again is like the cover story come to life in this modern time. What's been your favorite Crown interview so far? I love them all. I mean, I'm kind of a person that's consuming so much content that the last one is always the best. It was just so amazing to have Will Smith and Martin Lawrence back at the Apollo. We rented it with title. The whole place was packed, you know, four or five block line to get in. There probably wasn't a seat in the house. And to see these two on stage together, and it's just amazing because Will is such a big, larger-than-life personality. He is just on, on, on. And Martin is kind of in his shell a little bit. And to hear, like, the dynamic of both of them and have Elliot be able to kind of get one to speak and then the other and both share their stories about how they knew Biggie and their Biggie experiences just was so fun to watch. But I loved them all, from Drake really kind of breaking down his story and early on in the crown days to JLo calling us up this summer and saying that she wanted to do a crown and she was in the process of kind of her amazing year and she wanted to cement it with the right audience and really be able to tell her story long form. So 
I don't have a favorite. I think that there's so many great ones. It's an amazing catalog. I mean, we just got a call about a Mac Miller crown that we did and that content being re-edited. It's amazing. And a lot of it is either down or behind the paywall or in the vault. We're sitting on almost 40 interviews of heat that some of them we edited down, but these are all 90 minutes or so of just really intimate stories with a lot of gems in them. Yeah. I still need to check out the Will and Martin one. I still need to see Bad Boys for Life in general, but that one I've been saving. I think the one that sticks out to me the most was the Meek one, because I think the timing of it was just capturing Meek's redemption and him being free and everything leading up to that album. That's the second Meek one. Yeah. And oh my goodness, was he so on fire. He was so focused. Clearly, you could just feel that he was so in tune with his power. It was great. I I loved that interview. And we had billboards in Times Square for that. The stories he was telling and the way he was telling them about just being in jail and wanting to get out and just all the way he was thinking about the world. You could just see that all the work that he's done since then has made so much sense because he was really in tune. And the first Meek, believe it or not, was the day his album came out, Nicki Minaj dropped him off at Gramercy Theater. He hopped out the car. He was on top of the world. He had the number one album in the country. He was release day. And after that crown, I believe, is when he tweeted, tweeted at, at Drake. Drake. <laughs> I knew that's what you were doing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've done me twice. And just to see his growth and development is so impressive. But yeah, the first one, he was just also on top of the world, but in a different place. And his right. maturity level is just so next level now. Yeah, it's a great series. So for those listening, and if you haven't checked it out, check them out. And many of them are behind titles paywall, but make sure that you check them out. There's some good content coming out of there. Next, I want to talk about your blog and your newsletter, Beats and Bites. And of course, I always have a fitting connection to other people that put out content and do it on a regular basis, able to grow their own audience in that way. I want to hear a little bit about the newsletter, but I also want to hear about some of the recent things that you've written about, specifically the Grammys and the Super Bowl, because I think people would get a lot out of that. Yeah, well, absolutely. I started the newsletter initially, like I said, one of our differentiators representing artists was focusing on the tech world. We thought tech was the savior for the music business, and we knew if we could align artists with these tech platforms early, that it would be great for the artists, it would be a great way to prove value to the tech platforms, and it would be a niche for our agency where most people were doom and gloom on the industry overall. We could be a friendly face. So we started doing events, and that was the initial thing. It was called Sound Control, and we were bringing together music and tech best and brightest around different key tentpole moments or points of interest. And we built up a huge base. And this was all while I was a booking agent, but we built up this audience of people that were coming to our events and our RSVPing thousands of people. We would rent the old tower records 
that was a vacant space at the time. And we would bring in Questlove and Pepsi Music and all these different folks to talk about the intersection. And eventually we stopped doing the events just because we had other focuses, but we parlayed it into a weekly newsletter. So the weekly newsletter is called Beats and Bites. And to me, it's just a great way to keep my finger on the pulse because every week we tell everybody the articles that they need to know about in the music and tech space. So I'm reading a hundred or so articles a week and then really picking the ones that I think are most relevant to what we do. And then at the top of it all, obviously we're promoting the stuff that we're doing in there too. So it gives you a good pulse of what new agency is up to on a week to week basis. I add a POV and that is a way for me to, give my take or at least our company's take on what's happening on current news events. So in the past couple of weeks, the Grammys and the Super Bowl have been big, big business. And so we kind of put our spin on each of them, you know, from the Super Bowl, all the different commercials to the big, almost laughable Latinx awareness. And obviously we've been working in Latinx, understand the audience been doing deals for years with Latinx's biggest artists, but to see that J-Lo and Shakira and Bad Bunny and J Balvin have turned so many heads and really killed it with this year's Super Bowl, it was a great piece of content and a great conversation piece. So basically that's what we do. We cover what's happening. We give a kind of rundown of all the different deals that we see. And that's what we did with Super Bowl from, YB Corday and Coca-Cola's energy drink to Chance the Rapper starring in the new Quibi commercial to even how Chipotle and Justin Bieber did their version of a Super Bowl commercial, not on the Super Bowl. They did it all on Instagram and with TikTok influencers and during commercials and it was super targeted and generated huge impressions. It was good to be able to see it all and then boil it all down. And similar with the Grammys, we kind of talked about how out of tune they are in many ways and the merits of what's happening in other award shows that are popping up because the Grammys are missing the mark, because it feels so all over the place, because it's like not merit based necessarily. It's up to the recording Academy who wins the awards and who even is the recording Academy right now. Like Spotify is launching their own award show. That's all digital based and it's all based on streams and it's completely based on numbers. Now, I like the element of taste and numbers, but I do like the accountability. I think it's interesting as a format to see what this looks like, an award show strictly based on streams, or at least in a way more transparent way, and celebrating people for actually doing numbers versus whoever the Academy decides is the best record, the best producer, and we know which way that sways. I saw what you had wrote about Billie Eilish winning all four of the major awards. And of course she had a big year, but I think a lot of people were pretty surprised that she got all four of those awards. And this is the first time this has happened in almost 40 years. What was your take on that? Cause I know that you had shared a bit of skepticism about whether or not that was deserved. I feel like it was embarrassing even for her. It felt like she was the safe, obvious choice that people didn't know which other way to kind of vote. So they just voted her across the board. I think she has a great song. 
I think she's got an amazing brand. I think she's super talented. And I love the story of her and her brother in a bedroom making these records. But was this really album of the year? Was this really the deserver to win everything? Is this brother really the producer of the year? I mean, I joked that it felt a little bit like how Macklemore looked winning rap album of the year over Kendrick that year. It was like a straight apology. It was just clearly not the truth. It wasn't the album of the year. She didn't deserve everything. There was a lot of great artists and contestants here. And so I feel like she got it because of whatever reason. And I don't even think she thought she deserved it on that level. Yeah, Yeah, when she went up there for the award for album of the year, she said that she thought Ariana Grande deserved the award for, I forget the name of the album. Is it Sweetener? I think that's the name of the album. And I look at the song of the year. I remember talking to a few people about this. Like, Bad Guy was huge, and it was a big record, but I didn't think that I heard it any more than Lizzo Truth Hurts or obviously Old Town Road would be the biggest song of all time, according to the Billboard charts. And not that it necessarily needs to be purely metrics, because I think to your point, the taste and metrics mean a little bit more. And I think that regardless of where people stand on Lizzo, I know that she can be a polarizing figure for many. I don't see any way how Truth Hurts wasn't a more reflective song of this past year, Bad Guy. So I think those two awards specifically stuck out to me. Best New Artist, I think, is always a bit of a mess because who knows how someone even gets considered. So I do tend to ignore that one to some extent. But those are my takeaways when I saw her get those two awards specifically. Yeah, isn't interesting. Even behind the scenes, there was so much chaos with the new CEO being ousted a week before and the year before the current CEO and Neil Portnoy had said for women to step up. And then a woman was appointed CEO and Dugan was appointed CEO and she was like making these changes. And then she ended up getting thrown out and it's just seen and making huge allegations about the Grammys being rigged. It just seems like it's all over the place and just not so representative of what's happening in music. There's this independent movement going on. It just feels like it doesn't really show the depth and breadth of all these amazing things that are happening in the space. And it's really just kind of like who they want to celebrate this year. Agreed. I think that the other award shows to be able to have since I have the competition there will be great. I think it always adds a little bit there, but I think the true solution people want is the award show that does mean the most, even though its influence has dwindled over time, relatively speaking, the one that means the most, the Grammys can get its act together. But these things are definitely frustrating. So I know we have to trail things off soon, but before we let you go, it would be great to hear if you have anything that you'd want to plug or anything that you think that the Trapital audience should know about. I mean, the philosophy is really that music is the universal language. Music is the great connector. Music is the best way or the easiest way for a brand to really understand and to be in culture. And so our hope is that we can help more and more artists and brands connect 
and help more and more brands understand what a music strategy should look like in 2020 and why it's necessary and helping to broker more and more of these deals. We've got some great clients that we've done some innovative projects with, and there's a lot of learnings and a lot of case studies and a lot of important takeaways, but it's a, such a dynamic, fun industry. And there's so much opportunity, clearly, even when we're talking about like what's happening in sports versus what's happening in music, for more brands to get involved. And so we want to encourage more artists to look for these type of deals. And we want to encourage more brands to do it and do it in the right way, strategically and long-term. Makes sense. Because I think we're just going to see more and more of this coming down the road as hip hop and music in general continues to show its influence. And like how we had started this podcast, the difference between where artists are looked at versus where athletes are looked at, that gap, there's a lot of opportunity. So the more that that's closed and the more action that that gives you and others in this space, the better. Jesse K, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell at least one friend about this podcast. Word of mouth is still the best way to grow. Go to Apple Podcasts, go to iTunes, leave a review, rate the podcast. I will screenshot and share the podcast ratings on Twitter and Instagram. That can encourage more people to share the podcast. And if this podcast is your first introduction to Trapital, then make sure you check out the rest of the content. Go to Trapital.co. That's T-R-A-P-I-T-A-L.co. Sign up for the weekly newsletter. Get all the content there. And also shoot me a text. That's also a great way to stay in touch with travel content. You can text me, Dan Runcy at 415-234-3074. Thanks again. See you next week.